0: I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church. Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. What happens when your cultural identity feels at odds with your religious identity? Many people associated with the Anglican church who are indigenous, displaced, or so-called minority will tell you that they have had to grapple with that. And look, Anglicanism is undoubtedly global, but we also know that it's had a complex history. And when we look locally, who is it that comes to our churches? Who is it that feels the most at home there? And who do we almost never see in the pews and why? And why is it that certain traditions seem to attract certain cultural groups while, well, not attracting others? That is a problem that strikes at the heart of what it means to be a divided church. But it's also what strikes at the heart of what it means to be Christ's beloved, one, holy, Catholic church in our world. The Reverend Dr. Esau Macaulay joins us today. He is a priest in the Anglican Church of North America and assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. He's also a regular contributor to the Living Church and to many other publications, including very recently New York Times Opinion. Congratulations, Esau. He has sojourned and ministered in Japan and Scotland, and so he not only has the perspective of an African-American experience vis-a-vis Anglicanism, but also an international one. For another international perspective, we also asked the Reverend Dr. Mark Clavier to join us from across the pond. Mark grew up in North American Anglicanism. He lived and studied in England. Now he is a priest and residential canon of Brecon Cathedral in Wales. The conversation today is moderated by our executive director, Dr. Christopher Wells. And it will continue to riff off of an earlier written interview that I did with Esau a couple of months ago to talk more about the meaning, the shape the future of multicultural Anglicanism for Black Christians in the U.S. and for a multiplicity of cultures around the globe.
1: So welcome, brothers. Uh, thank you for making the time to have this discussion. And um, I think what we're going to try to talk about is multicultural Anglicanism. But all of these terms potentially can be uh, questioned. What is, what, is, what is culture? How many cultures are we talking about? And by the way, what's, what do we mean by Anglicanism? And uh, so maybe just softball question, what jumps to mind for both of you um, personally? in terms of global or multicultural Anglicanism, take it whatever direction you want. Um, But say something personal about your take on the the topic.
2: Well, I'll say as an African-American who is an Anglican, I've kind of developed an apologetic when my Black brothers and sisters who are in traditionally Black denominations say, hey, why are you Anglican? And I can say, hey, we're a global church that if you look, the majority of Anglicans in the world are in the global South. We're um, Asian, um, Latin American, African. And so I can say that and I can kind of push back and say our church is a global international body. And that's like the apologetic answer. But the other answer is that, like as it comes to its local expression in the United States, it has been and continues to be a predominantly white in its culture and its mode of expression in the vast majority of its churches. And so it depends on like what mood I'm in. And if I'm being honest, I do like, yeah. Anglicanism in both the Episcopal Church and in the Anglican Church in North America, as it's experienced by the vast majority of its congregants, is not very diverse.
3: Yeah, and I would agree with that. My experience of Anglicanism in the continuing church in the United States and then here in in Britain is pretty much of a monocultural church, Uh, not just white, but generally speaking, middle-class and the United States, all too often whites who desperately wish they were British. Um, uh, so, but having said that, I now live in Wales, which gives one a very different perspective, because it's the first place I've been where one's Welsh identity often is at odds with that very Englishness of, of Anglicanism. There are there are plenty of Welsh nonconformists who still think it an act of national betrayal for a Welsh person to belong to the English church as Anglicanism is often called by old conservative uh, nonconformists. And so there's a whole wrestling with what it means to be an Anglican in a nation that has a uh, ambivalent relationship with, with England? Uh, and what does it mean to be a distinctively Welsh Anglican? And then of course what happens is in, in pursuing that question, you run the risk of defining yourself negatively against that which you're opposed. And then that creates further tensions within, w- within Welsh Anglicanism.
2: Being in Japan and being in Scotland, I served in Episcopal or Anglican community churches in in both of those places. In Japan, because the Christian church was so small there and largely irrelevant, the only time the media really covered Christians was when the Archbishop of Canterbury kind of came through. And it's interesting to kind of see how, for them, the connection to the Church of England went almost beyond any theological commitment to kind of a Catholic vision of Anglicanism. But it it was really in, in a traditional sense, like, the North Star, it was this anchor that kept them from just being yet another tiny, insignificant, numerically, not like spiritually, numerically insignificant group. And so I, I never realized that because as an American, we have much more an independent streak. So the tie to like the Anglican Communion didn't necessarily have the same kind of emotional pull. But when I was in when I was in Scotland, the Scottish Episcopal Church has this had this strong sense of national pride. They're like we were doing something special here in Scotland and that the the story of kind of Christianity in the Isles is not just what's going on in Canterbury. And so there's this strong sense of Scottish Episcopalianism as a unique gift to the church. And so to see both the independence drink within the Anglican Communion and the need for Canterbury in these two different places really helped me understand the diversity of the experience of the communion in different parts of the world
3: and of course here in wales we it, it is well remembered that that we were here first <laughs> uh, you know we have a we have a we have a church nearby it's victorian but the site that it the the church stands on uh has been a christian site since the late 5th early 6th century um so before bede uh really before augustine of canterbury's mission to, uh, to the British Isles. So that is well remembered here. So can I ask you sort of, I wanna ask about
1: place and history and the importance of England for the Anglican project. Because obviously the word England is built into our name, but when we thought about the kind of call and vocation of Anglicanism in the Anglican communion, especially from like 1867 on with the first Lambeth Conference, we've kind of said, You know, the core of what we're about is actually Catholicism, uh, the Catholic faith. You know, Uh, Lambeth Conference 1920 said we need to cultivate a sense of what is universal and genuinely Catholic in truth and life. And you all were both kind of saying that in, in effect, wanting to talk about a kind of global Catholicism. But by the same token, there is that history. Certain places are privileged historically in Anglicanism which I think is, is reflected in the name England. And of course the Archbishop of Canterbury and so forth. Now you could look at other Christian families and say, this is how it rolled. You know, this is a providential fact, you know, God, God called Israel first. That's a particular people, you know, the Pope of Rome is in Rome. It's a global Catholic church, but he's in Rome, whatever, Arch, you know, Patriarch of Constantinople. But how do you all think about this?
2: I would say that like, as a Christian, we can't erase history and we have to balance the, we have to make the balance between recognizing God's providential ordering of history and recognizing kind of the ways which God is moving in our time. So I think that calling this, what we do Anglican or Anglicanism is just a statement of historical fact that the way that we, and you can't separate theology from culture because theology is always enculturated. And so there is a certain Britishness to the Anglican way of doing theology. But that kind of Britishness that's attached to our theology changes form and shape when it enters into new places. And so it it allows, I think Anglicanism allows for both the recognition of our historical rootedness and for the possibility of enculturation. I think for Anglicanism to become what Anglicanism needs to become, that we need to allow that project to go forth unhindered. And I think that sometimes the Brit, I mean, our beloved Brits sometimes want to maintain more of the British way of doing things instead of letting Anglicanism come what it wants to become. And so what I would say that part of what English leadership might look like is recognizing what the spirit is doing in the communion and fostering that instead of trying to control it
3: yeah I think I, I i would I would say two things. Um, the first is our heritage is obviously British, not just in a kind of present way of looking to england or or valuing that that history, if people actually know that history, but by the fact that overwhelmingly, the theologians who have shaped our thought have been, British, and primarily English. Even, what, even with the growth of the Anglican Communion, the number of influential theologians from outside of the British Isles has been pretty small in comparison to those in Britain. So that, that creates a kind of flavor uh, and, and a, a link as well. I think what makes it strange is, and this is what I've learned now that I've lived almost 13 years in Britain, is when you live in Britain, the Anglican Communion becomes almost like a, a, a fiction. <laughs> uh, nobody here worries about the Anglican Communion. They're hardly even aware of the Anglican Communion, except maybe a diocesan link with another diocese somewhere. But isn't
1: this one of our problems, Mark? I mean, is, that, is there a, a glass-half-full way of thinking about that, or is that a problem?
3: I think it's, I think it's a problem, because it, 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 here I often encounter a provincialism that, that's convinced that Anglicanism is a certain way, even though that certain way doesn't exist anywhere else in the Anglican Communion. For example, being an established church or having a parochial system based on geographical bounds these evoke a very different Anglicanism than you'll find almost anywhere else. I wonder if theology I, I I'm sympathetic
1: to the a certain kind of post-colonial penitence, right? And thinking about the history of imperialism and, and even what Esau was just saying about a kind of British and English tendency to control things in the communion. You know, the truth is for those of us who've been following those discussions, English and British leaders themselves have been trying to relinquish control and saying that they've been trying to relinquish control for at least a generation. But it's hard, you know? And, um, but I think part of what's happened too, and I, I think theology is catching up with perhaps the political practice at this point. But it's interesting when you look back at earlier Anglican communion discussions like in 1920, they, when they're talking about England, they actually used the word race race right alongside English in a way that's uncomfortable. And what's clear is that they think of England and the Church of England as white. And of course, that may have been predominantly true in 1920, but it's certainly not true in England now in 2020, which has many, many Africans and others that are part of the Church of England. And Esau, of course, is working a lot on this in kind of North American Anglicanism. So how do we theologize diverse, global diversity and racial diversity even within our nations? Because because n- the nation has been so important in the history of Anglicanism, you know, the national church.
2: What, one of the things, and this will sound like I'm pushing back on some of the things that you said. People have been, the, the Church of England, and this is not to bash the leadership of the Church of England, they've been saying that they've been trying to give up control for a generation, but they've managed to maintain control. And they, and it, it seems like there are these times where when things seem to be getting out of control, the the inaction allows for a stasis that is kind of its own form of power. And that form of power has the effect of silencing other voices, other global voices in Anglicanism. And there's a real sense in which, like, when, when, when global Anglicanism becomes a little bit too rowdy, we just send everybody back to their room until they learn how to be British again. And what I'm saying is, like, we've seen that particular manifestation. And I'm not talking about any decision. It's just like, we just shut it down when it's not going to go the way that England wants it to go until... We get a new group of black people or brown people who can do that. The other thing I want to say is that that actually happens locally too, in like across the community, as to which kinds of Africans and um, African Americans are put into leadership. And the question is, and and this this gets to like once again, I talked about our polity. How our I'll talk about North America. The reason why there's so many African Americans in Baptist churches and Methodist churches. It's because during the end of slavery and post-Reconstruction, they did not need white bishops to approve them. They were chosen by their skill. So if you could plant a healthy church and grow it, you were a Baptist pastor. The AME Church and the Methodist Church, the Black Methodists, didn't have apostolic succession, so they could just get bishops. And so that allowed African-Americans to choose the leaders who were most gifted. And because of that, those churches were enculturated quickly, and they spread throughout the, they spread throughout the South and the West. And in the um, historically Black churches, in the Episcopal Church that thrived, it was that same model. The ones that were historically Black that raised up their own leadership were the ones that thrived. But because through so many parts of the Episcopal Church historically—I can say this because the Anglican Church didn't exist until 10 years ago, so I'm just bashing Episcopalians. I'm talking about the history— You mean of- the
1: Anglican Church in North America, yeah. Yeah.
2: We didn't exist, right? So this is not me right. saying the Episcopalians are bad. We're just wearing them. No, sure. What, what it means is, though, the, the people who were chosen—I'm not speaking about the authenticity of Black clergy in, in the Episcopate—is that people who were chosen were not often chosen by the community who are most be affected by their ministry. And so the reason why I think there's not been an explosion of African-Americans in the Episcopal Church or now in the Anglican Church is because the people on the ground are not the ones who get to choose who gets to be in power. And as long as you have a majority white institution saying, this is the kind of black person I want to have in power, then there's always going to be a certain level of they have to pass a respectability test. And so this is not a statement about any individual bishop's authenticity, so don't send me emails or yell at me about this. <laughs> but it, sure. it, it, is to say, it is to say, for example, in the Episcopal Church, as a member, the, I was a member of it for like 20, I mean, 10 years. We tend to elect, or they tended to elect African Americans from the progressive strand of the Black church tradition. And the Black church tradition is way more pluriform than a manifestation of Blackness in the Episcopal Church. And in the Anglican Church in North America, so this kind of gets to the other side. Anyone who listens to it, we, we don't have very many Black bishops at all. So that's like on one level, that's a mute question. We have two from the historically Black denomination. But the question of like, what kind of Black leader is acceptable in a conservative denomination is also a question. And so the this struggle of the freedom of African-American Christianity and all of its diversity to actually exist within Anglicanism is actually in North America is an open question. We don't know the answer to it because we've never seen it.
0: Did you know that the first issue of the Living Church magazine came out in 1878? It invited a small group of Midwestern American readers to be active, informed Christians, influencing their local communities and encouraging the highest possible standards in church teaching, preaching, music, art. If you're not a subscriber, consider it. Subscription rates start at $9.95 a year for digital and about $5 an issue for a traditional magazine. You can subscribe for our next issue at livingchurch.org and just click the subscribe tab.
3: And the common denominator in all that is those controlling the conversation are white Anglicans. Yes. And, I, and that's, that remains, I think, the big issue in the Anglican Communion. Uh, even people who talk about multiculturalism and, the, and the, it being a wonderful thing usually are talking about multiculturalism on white terms. It may define that in terms of progressivism or, you know, in another church, conservatism. But the people who are dictating the terms on which all non-whites are, are judged and are to behave themselves are, are, the, are,
2: are the whites. It is, it, it is simply a matter of historical fact that in both the global South and in North America, that the vast majority of African-Americans By any definition of the term will be called traditional, theologically, conservative, orthodox, whatever that term is. And there's two ways of valuing diversity. There's a value of diversity is you can be a part of my picture so that your diversity is a manifestation of my ideology. So like your blackness testifies to my generosity or spirit to accept different kinds of people. Or there's a diversity in which I share power with you. And no one actually believes. No one actually believes that there was shared power in which the black and brown people in the Anglican communion were given full weight that the shape of the communion would be what it is. Like we actually said, what do the majority of African and Africans and, and um, Asians and um, Latinos actually think the communion should be? We know that it would, it would look different. I'm not saying that it wouldn't, it wouldn't look like Gafcon. I'm not saying it would look like Gafcon. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the current status would be different. And the fact that it isn't different is because England doesn't want it to be different. And that means the manifestation of diversity, then, is ultimately false. And, if, and, and what we really need, what we really need, what Anglicanism desperately needs, is a Gorbachev to like tear it down to allow what the communion wants to be to actually become. But I think that there's a part of England that is afraid of what the shape of the communion will be if all of these ethnic minorities are now not even economic north, if the majority world actually becomes the face of Anglicanism. And what we have right now is a mediated diversity that is palatable to a British audience through the people who are in charge. And that may seem like an inflammatory comment, but just look around.
3: Yeah, I think I would broaden I think I would broaden it to to Western Anglicanism. I I th- I've actually encountered more of an appetite here in Britain for that than, than I was expecting, just as you, the Church of England, as usual, is not the most competent body f- for bringing it about. I think it is a priority for, for, for Welby, and I'm not the biggest fan of Welby. But at the same time, I think, I think Esau's right in terms of England and the way its structures and its diminished role in the world shape how it understands how to go forward with this. But you, you rarely encounter, except in some of the more progressive circles here, the kind of language about, for example, African Anglicanism that that you encounter in the States.
1: Right. Of the sort of scorn, you mean, that you hear, or, or patriotism. Yeah.
3: yeah. And I think that it's because so many more Brits here have some kind of personal experience of Africa. Even if it's just a holiday, they you know they've been there, they've met people there, they they've seen the places, and so it makes it a bit more of a reality. But at the same time, I mean, I I take completely on board what what Esau's saying, and I think that that is true for Western Anglicanism, i.e., White Anglicanism as as a whole. They don't want a religious power. Let me
1: seize on the power point that Esau was making, which I think is is pertinent. Um, and just drill a little bit deeper for, let's just, let's just explore this for a second because one of let's, let's grant that it's hard. It's hard to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. (laughs) Now we've said that the focus of unity in the Anglican communion is going to be the Archbishop. Now we are also having a structural discussion of Anglican ecclesiology. And I would say everything is on the table. All the proposals are on the table. But we also know when we sort of look under the hood of African Anglicanism, that not all Africans are the same, right? And they're not, Esau mentioned Gafcon. I think it's a bit of a cliche to say, basically, there's kind of a, there's like a centrist block of sort of African, you know, African uh, folks who are broadly part of Kappa, but then there's also a Gafcon view. Now, Welby has said his dream, his vision, he would love not only for there to be an African Archbishop of Canterbury, but for the next Archbishop of Canterbury to be African. But here we get to one of the structural problems of Anglicanism. And I think we have to be honest, this is difficult. Now, we might say the English aren't doing a very good job running it. Americans are terribly pragmatic and good at business. and But thank God the Americans aren't running the communion. I'll just stipulate that. But, you know, it's not like all Africans agree either and one of the deep loyalties of many Africans to Anglicanism has to do with the history of British missions and with England because they've studied in England and also with the historic Sea of Canterbury. So how do we work within the structures of historic Anglicanism while making progress on the thing Esau's talking about? I mean, how do we share
2: power, you know? I think that the problem is, um, if I understand it, I don't. I th- when I say the communion would look different, I don't. I don't say. I don't mean that it's code to say that everything the GAFCON wanted to do would have occurred. What I want to say is that like the consensus that we have, or the, the posture that we have, is is weighted more towards appeasing the sensibilities of the West than global Anglican broadly, and that includes Kappa all the way as you move further right towards GAFCON. That's what I was trying to articulate. And the thing that I would say is the problem is I don't think that you can reorder Anglicanism in the sense that I think that if you're going to have something that includes the whole community, it has to have Canterbury as a part of it. And we just don't have a good working model because I don't think that the Eastern Orthodox have done it very well. We've just struggled historically in Christendom to have a shared power national church model that cooperates well together. And that might be that might be the challenge, and I'm not saying that the papal model. And so I think that's the problem. I think that w- what you need is a gifted archbishop. I'm sorry. You need you need you need you need an archbishop who is actually attuned to what the church is doing, to in what God is doing in and through co- the, the communion, and trying your best to implement that, regardless of the calculus that might cost you in your particular context. And so my accusation is the following. I think that there's two or three things that could possibly be done a little bit differently that aren't being done because of Western realities, not because the rest of the global South in whatever variety wouldn't agree to them. And that's the limitation on the current manifestation of Western leadership of Anglicanism. And that's the only part that I think would be different. I think there's a a place where even if you would say if the Archbishop of Canterbury adopted the position of the global South, GAFCON wouldn't be satisfied but they'd be kind of like okay we get it and then some people in in the, in the west might be like okay we, but it would feel like it was representative and i just don't feel like what we see right now is representative of actual shared power and opinion and decision making
3: yeah and it, and it is it's a it's a tough nut to to crack i mean part of the problem with having canterbury as the head primates of the anglican communion is that he's more than just that person he is also Within the English Constitution and the role vis-a-vis the Queen and oaths of allegiance and uh, and all the rest, so that makes it very difficult to open that role up to the communion. My
1: understanding is that their thought is that it, you know you you basically you elect your first African Archbishop, you know that the person gets fast tracked to British citizenship and and has to be based geographically in Canterbury. I mean, you have to move to Canterbury.
3: Yeah, which would be it would be an interesting system because they, because then the problem you face is someone who is the primate of the the Church of England who may not understand all the complexities of the Church of England. And and I think uh, an aspect of all of this that is important is that the global South is continuing to grow like wildfire, while here in Britain. Christianity continues to shrink. And we're right on the, the cliff edge of some serious decisions having to be made here in terms of clergy numbers and closing churches. And, and actually, we may be over that cliff edge post-COVID-19. Um, that, that's going to be a full-time job for any bishop or archbishop for some time to, to come. I mean, I, my, my kind of depressing conclusion with it all is that we Anglicans end up doing what we Anglicans have always done, and that's completely muddle our way through to some conclusion. And that conclusion may be just by the way, the, by sheer demographics that the Anglican communion comes into its own, and especially the global south, because it's where the number and the energy are. Well, let me end
1: Give you both a chance, just briefly. You're both priests, besides being theologians. Give me your brief summary of a sort of the- theological or spiritual hope for the Anglican Communion, say in the next generation, like thirty years.
2: I would love to see what the I would love to see the Communion partners flourish in the Episcopal Church. I really would, and I would love to see a renewed vision from there. I would love to see. I would hope to see within my own context the ACNA continue to kind of stretch its wings and develop a Catholic vision for the future of Anglicanism. Because I think that whatever future for Anglicanism it has, it has with some relationship between the the communion partner section of the Episcopal Church, and then hopefully something with us a, a, in some form of at least cordiality. And so I guess as a priest, my future in North America is for Anglicans, Anglicans who are very close on values to cooperate where it makes sense. And I would also say that I would hope for, and to be honest, I would hope for in England, I would hope for the communion to become what the communion seems to be wanting to become. And I think if the communion is allowed to develop unhindered, that I'm very hopeful for uh, the future of global Anglicanism, and and I and I think that this is this is the birth pain of something that is growing. But I'm not I'm not devoid of hope. But I do think that the reality is that from here to there, it's going to be very messy.
3: I would put mine in in two ways. The the start off with as I often say to. People in my Bible studies, or I'll bring up in sermons from time to time, that if we were true to our Christian vocation, when we filled out application forms, we would put down for our sex, we would put Christian for our ethnicity, we would put Christian for our race, we would put Christian for every other way that the world tries to identify and divide us up, we would just put down Christian. And so, my hope for Anglicanism, as it is for all of Christianity, is that we will begin to grow into our vocation to be the body of Christ, to be Christ to the world that transcends all worldly divisions and identities and unites us all in mission under Christ our head, to to finally show the world what it means to be Catholic. I would also include within that that to my mind, we live in a world that is still divided starkly between those countries and nations that have benefited from the racism and imperialism of the past, a kind of affluence that we enjoy today that couldn't have come our way without the imperialism and the slavery and the the genocide of native peoples. And that same world is now destroying the planet in terms of sustainability. So I would love for the church in the next 30 years to be able to show the world a different way of human flourishing that perhaps brings about redemption of especially the white populations who were involved in all that and through that redemption, reconciliation between us and all the people of the world that during the past 400 years we have harmed so wretchedly. Well,
1: gentlemen, brothers, thank you for a wonderful conversation. Um, Mark Clavier, Esau McCauley, many blessings uh, on both of you on your continued ministries.
3: Thank
2: you. Thank you so much. Pray for me. Pray for the communion. Pray for North America and Anglicanism. Pray that God is glorified through all that we do.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link in the show notes that will allow you to give so we can continue to make these episodes. Look for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts these days. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and I've been glad to be with
3: you. Peace.